Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. Today, we're flipping the script as I'll be on the other side of the table while my colleague, Stephen Norton, MetaStrategy's co-head of research, media, and executive networks, interviews me about my new book, Getting to Nimble. In this interview, we discuss the five themes of Getting to Nimble, people, process, technology, ecosystems, and strategy. The book's now available on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, or wherever you buy books. As a special offer to our CXO listeners, if you purchase 50 or more copies of the book for your team, I'd be happy to join you and your team for a group discussion on it. To learn more, write us at info at metastrategy.com or visit gettingtonimble.com. Thank you so much. Before we get to our interview, I wanted to introduce you to our sponsor, Zoho and the company's president, Timothy Casby. Prior to taking on his current role, he was the chief information officer of a number of companies, including Reliance Industries, Sears, Intrexon, and the Warehouse Group. He's now at Zoho, a most unusual enterprise software company, and wanted to share some perspectives from it. Timothy, take it away. Peter, you keep calling us an unusual enterprise software company. I think we should talk about that a bit. Yes, we have not borrowed a single dollar from a VC or a bank, and ended up bootstrapping our way to multi-billion dollar SaaS business with over 60 million enterprise users. That itself is unusual for a tech company. But the principles that have kept us from accepting VC term sheets are simple. We believe all our employees should have good night's sleep each night, be it month-end, quarter-end, or year-end. To enable this principle, we have stayed private and have not dipped into public money. We don't believe in debt and discourage anyone from getting in one. A good night's sleep has its premium. Yes, we believe in good night's sleep and eating healthy foods. That's why we leave money on the table. It comes from our principle of eating healthy food. Just because there is food on the table, we don't believe it's healthy to eat it all. Therefore, any product we market, be it CRM, Sign, Helpdesk, and 100 others, these will be many multiples cheaper than our nearest competitor. And it comes from the principle of leaving money on the table. Find out more about our unusual enterprise company at Zoho.com. Thanks, Timothy. And now a word from our other partner, Aptio. Digital transformation is a journey, not a destination. Technology decisions teams make today determines the success of tomorrow. That's why Aptio is dedicated to helping companies harness the power of trusted, actionable insights. It's called technology business management and more than 60% of the Fortune 100 are already using it to speed their innovation. Learn more about how Aptio can help you connect your technology decisions to better business outcomes. Visit aptio.com. And now on to the interview. Welcome to the other side of the microphone, Peter. Uh, great to see you today. Uh, as, as you know, we're here to discuss your book, Getting to Nimble, How to Transform Your Company into a Digital Leader, which launches tomorrow, March 30th. Uh, I thought we might start a little bit with the genesis of the title. These days, we hear so much about the need for speed and the need for agility in our operations and the way that we make decisions. And Nimble seems like it, it scratches a little bit below the surface of that. Uh, could you define Nimble as you see it in your mind and, and talk a little bit about how that became the, the title of the book? Yeah, thank you, Stephen. And, and always great to speak with you. I appreciate the, appreciate the dialogue. So the genesis of the title actually came from a conversation I had with Shamim Mohammed of CarMax, a story I tell in the book. But uh, Shamim, the, the actually chief information officer, chief technology officer of that company, I was interviewing him for my podcast. And as I often do at the conclusion of those interviews, I asked him what trends excited him as he looked to the future. And as I recall, I believe you mentioned machine learning and blockchain as two trends that he was monitoring and excited about. But he concluded his remarks by saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, if I'm looking a few years out, the pace of change is such that the number one trend that I'll be focused on may be something you and I can't name today. And as a result of that, I need to foster nimbleness in my organization. And that really resonated with me as I was driving home from Richmond, where CarMax is uh, based, Richmond, Virginia, to, to my home outside of Washington, D.C. I was really playing around with that notion in my mind. I liked the phrasing. Um, as you say, the need for speed and agility, nothing wrong with those the, that phraseology as both of those apply as well. But you're right. I think nimbleness does kind of dig a little bit deeper into the surface. It's a, a variety of practices, including you know agile uh, agility as it as it relates to culture, agility as it relates to process and development. Uh, but more than that, it is setting up your entire organization such that you can seize opportunities 
more readily as they appear and also stave off issues as unfortunately they will continue to appear more often and when they are least expected to a, to a greater degree in the present and future as well. And so having that as your orientation as an enterprise and your orientation as a technology or digital leader becomes that much more important. Great. I really appreciate that. And, and being able to say that we need to be able to address not just the obstacle that we see in front of us, the challenge or the opportunity, but being ready to, to tackle whatever it is that may come that we may not even see right now. Uh, excellent. Well, as you go through the book, there are five key themes that you cover, uh, people, process, technology, ecosystem, and strategy. And it was interesting as I was reading that people came first. Um, as I was reading through, I was thinking, oh, well, surely you would need a strategy and then things would trickle down from there. But you really start with people. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about why you made that decision and how that factors into the broader structure of the book. Yeah. And I'll begin by saying, Stephen, that although, of course, as in any book, there's a serial nature to it. You read page one before you do two, before 10 and 20 and on. And therefore, the methodology unrolls in that way. Um, it doesn't fully suggest, of course, that you only do the first item and then the second item and then the third item. Of course, in a going concern, there's going to be work associated with all the areas that are articulated. But that said, your point is a, is, is the right one. It, generally speaking, if you've got people practices, uh, if you don't have the right people doing the right jobs, if you don't have them striving to build the skills for tomorrow as opposed to resting on the laurels of the skills that they've developed and honed for that apply yesterday or just today, um, there are going to be some significant issues. And so first and foremost, building a great team, building a great culture, uh, ensuring that those people are with you, especially the best among them for the long term, giving them incentives to do so, making sure they're getting the right training, in fact, so they are constantly building those those skills for the future uh, on your organization's behalf become the essential elements to a nimble organization. This is really foundational, I would say. Uh, needless to say, if your best people are leaving your organization, you can have the best strategy in the world, the most elegant and nuanced strategy, more innovative than your competition, but who's going to be implementing that, right? And who's going to understand the context of what's described therein? You need a great team in order to do those sorts of things. So look, strategy is still sacred and is still incredibly important. You need to be setting a North Star. You need to make sure that everyone is pushing in the same direction. But if that foundational item and a few others behind it uh, aren't in place, well, then that strategy is not going to be worth the paper it's printed on. <laughs> Absolutely. The, the people have to come first. And I think you touch on something that is really on a lot of people's minds right now, which is how do we make sure, especially in these unprecedented times, that our people are ready to be as nimble as possible and adapt to whatever it is that might come our way. Learning agility is a topic that we talk about a lot and something that a lot of companies that we talk about are trying to foster, um, creating that culture of just constant learning. And curious your, to hear your perspective, Peter, on how technology leaders can enable that learning agility and how that ultimately creates that more nimble culture inside the organization. Yeah. You know, so Ben Freed, the longtime CIO of Google, told me a great story, one that I, I tell in the book as well. Um, uh, and it was based on a question that I asked him. He and I were speaking at a conference in Mexico together. And as we were seated at breakfast before going on stage, I, I asked him, you know, what, what, um, how has Google maintained this entrepreneurial spirit and ability to, to change so rapidly to, to, to deliver so much innovation, even after becoming a behemoth? Oftentimes, organizations um, lose that, that magic as they get larger. And what he told me was that Google is an organization that has always made change a core competence. And I thought, wow, what a great way to frame things. Change is the one thing that you know is going to happen. The, the, the way in which it will happen is going to be different uh, depending upon circumstances. And some of those will be outside of your control. But building an organization that is comfortable with change and in fact, culturally aware of that change and embracing that change becomes that much more important. And I mentioned that as the, the precedent to, to uh, your question as to learning agility, because if change is going to be constant, then you need to make sure that you're building skills that are representative of the change to come. And so um, critically important that you const constantly are aware of these trends that are rising, uh, gauging their application back into your organization, understanding which practices that used to be de rigueur 
that are actually no longer applicable and making the change necessary to uh, always be building that that organization of the future. Dialing back into the methods of, of doing this, Stephen, it requires even in the recruiting process uh, of ensuring that as you're recruiting people, you are recruiting people who are comfortable with change, people who are self-starters, who are autodidacts, who are willing to do the work, perhaps at times on their own time, to do the reading and training and learning to build the skills for tomorrow. That becomes that much more important. And so these are some of the things that I think are the the key ingredients of an organization that is constantly striving and changing and building for the future, as opposed to uh, calcifying and being the best, you know, even in in, uh, 2021, being the best IT department circa 2015 or circa 2010. Absolutely. And I, I like what you mentioned about making change a core competence, not just for the individuals inside your company, but as an organization as a whole, what sort of structures do you build to make that uh, possibility, which which ties in a little bit to the process piece of your book. Obviously, there's a lot of change happening across today's organizations as they undergo their different digital transformation initiatives and change initiatives. Some of the things that you mentioned are this broader shift to uh, product-focused IT as opposed to the original project-focused as well as a, a broader embrace of agile and DevOps practices that enable enable these teams to to move at the speed of change, as it were. Um, and I'm I'm curious how you think about the technology leader specifically um, as a catalyst for that kind of change inside the organization. So not just within IT, but really within their broader company. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Stephen. I think, it, it, and it, it is logical for IT to be the catalyst for this. I think. Uh, because so much of the innovation within organizations are at the intersection between technology and those other disciplines. You know, I've, I've mentioned before that uh, if you think about the average marketing executive, he or she has a purview which is outside of the enterprise, the existing and potential customers of the company. Uh, the average human resources executive has a, has a vector that is pointed inside the organization on the employees of the company. And in great organizations, they probably have some cognizance of each other's plans, but they probably don't go into the footnotes of those. By contrast, the IT leader needs to breathe life into both of those plans and everyone in between. And that's, a, on the one hand, a big responsibility, but it's also an enormous advantage in terms of understanding how um, demand is evolving, how opportunities are presenting themselves, where there is a need articulated in one part of the organization that also applies to another part of the organization because a similar need is being articulated there and tying and connecting the dots even before the executives who are offering those points recognize those similarities themselves. And so a lot of the practices, and you mentioned some of the most important ones, uh, whether it's DevOps, the portmanteau, which brings together development and operations, and, and, and much more importantly, brings together the practices of once siloed parts of an IT organization. The product uh, operating model changes, which um, define services for, uh, across the organization or capabilities across the organizations, ultimately products, in a similar way to which the company develops products for customers and de- de- devises and develops teams that are cross-functional, that bring together uh, different uh, people from across the organization with different kinds of skill sets in order to focus on the continued honing of those, those products. Um, you know, agile uh, methodology, in fact, as a, as a predecessor to both of those, which one of the key tenets is involving the intended beneficiary of what you're developing at the earliest stages and continuing to validate uh, progress, lack thereof, value, lack thereof. Uh, along the way as well. So one of the really exciting trends that IT executives uh, deserve a lot of credit in fostering in in companies is bringing together these traditional uh, skills that had been siloed across different parts of the organization and making those silos not necessarily fully tearing them apart, but making them more permeable such that people can cross cross uh, between those uh, th- and through those silos to collaborate in ways that they they hadn't before. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that really stood out to me as I was reading the book, Peter, was just the way in which the technology executive can be a bridge to these other organizations, but also be sort of the door through which other folks can move and start to work with one another and really break down some of those silos. Zooming out just a little bit, obviously, it's been an interesting year for for all of us and for a lot of companies. And we've seen some some big changes in terms of the, the pace at which digital change was occurring. And I'd just love to get your thoughts on how you see the events of the past year or so 
either helping or hindering organizations as they continue to undergo their their larger digital shifts. Well, you know, there's the Winston Churchill line that is, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Uh, and I think that, if, look, for some organizations, I don't want to be flippant. For some organizations, this has been an existential crisis. And, and as a result, many companies have have uh, have perished as a result of the uh, the, 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 they're suffering, uh, through the, the, the health crisis and the economic crisis that, that, that came right behind it. And so we need to recognize that for some businesses, there were structural issues that, that didn't allow them to, uh, or at least not yet allowed them to, um, cause there will be others that are in their wake, unfortunately, uh, cross over to, to take advantage, so to say of, of the crisis in the way that Churchill mentioned, but for those organizations that have not been, um, you know, so fundamentally hurts. Uh, most organizations are at least tightening their belts a little bit and, and thinking about where costs can be saved. Of course, it's only prudent to do so when there's so many forces outside of your control uh, that, that are being exerted upon your business. But it does focus the attention on a lot of things that uh, tie to what we might generally call digital transformation. And I would say those organizations, all things being equal, that had begun their digital transformation earliest and had had accomplished the most prior to this crisis surfacing are the ones, again, all things being equal, that have thrived uh, or at least been most resilient. And the reason for that is, for example, uh, where there were in-person revenue, uh, let's take retail, uh, a big box retailer, uh, for, for months on end, and for many of them, almost throughout the entire crisis, the traffic into those stores, understandably, has been decreased, if not uh, having gone away for certain periods. Having a digital uh, revenue source that one can lean on during these lean times becomes that much more important. And obviously, the sophistication of, of that and making sure that, it's, that, that that pivot can effectively happen becomes that much more, more important as well. Um, it also means that when we're not with our uh, colleagues day to day, so many of us operating virtually and out of our homes, finding ways to better collaborate with them and having the digital tools in place to not only have uh, conversations like the one you and I are having, Stephen, but also monitoring the productivity of the team, the well-being of the team, uh, the, the, the health of the organization. And I mean that both in terms of the individuals and the operation itself. Certainly using data to a greater extent to gauge the health of the business and uh, course correcting based upon what that data is telling you. And so, uh, so many of these forces have really uh, underscored the great work of digital and technology leaders to, although none of them would have been planning for this reality, which we certainly could not have predicted, but making sure that there was resilience. And again, this gets back to the concept that, that we talked about earlier, Stephen, of nimbleness. Um, that I mentioned, you know, seizing opportunity as it presents itself, staving off issues. There's really a combination of those two that are happening so much more rapidly with all these unprecedented, at least in our lifetime, circumstances that have presented themselves to so many organizations. The ones that have been nimble enough to be able to pivot based upon what the circumstances uh, were being thrown at them are the ones who have been, as I say, most resilient and in fact, in many cases, have thrived during this period. And you mentioned that data plays a key role in that um, and, and it's increasingly becoming more strategic for a lot of companies as they look to speed up their decision making to address those challenges or opportunities as the case may be. And just curious, Peter, how you're thinking about and what you're hearing from organizations about the ways in which data is evolving as a strategic asset inside uh, these companies and and how how they're reorganizing themselves to best take advantage of it. Yeah, it's a great question, Stephen. And you know, you, you've done such a great job uh, as part of our conferences, and you know some of the polling data that we've collected from many hundreds of of uh, technology and digital leaders on these very topics. And some of the conclusions that we have found so interesting, you and I, in our past conversations, I know, is what was really, I think, a, a very promising sign. In fact, in the early days, let's say March, April, May of the crisis in 2020. Understandably, so much of the focus was on uh, collaboration technology, on security, you know, these sorts of fundamentals that if you don't have the right tooling in place, you need to get it very quickly to make sure that you are uh, able to continue to collaborate with your colleagues and you're doing so as securely as the threat landscape goes from the office to everyone's homes. It disseminates in that, that complicated way. 
once people had um, felt as though they, they, they put in place the right tools uh, for those priorities, the really encouraging sign come mid-year of last year was as we pulled those same technology and digital executives, that data and analytics was rising up to the top of the uh, of, of areas of focus and areas of priority and indeed where budgets were being spent. And I, I really took a lot of, uh, I was heartened by that data because it suggests that organizations were playing offense in addition to, of course, the needed defense during a time like this. Now, what's interesting is as we, uh, as a secondary question, you would know this, Stephen, but as a secondary question to that question, we asked, uh, please rate the maturity of your data strategy capabilities. And um, the, 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 the flip side uh, came about, which is most people rated themselves as fairly immature. So this is an area of emphasis, but it would suggest that a lot of organizations are still relatively speaking in the early parts of their journey. And so I, I believe this is going to be a tremendous area of investment and uh, it should, for those who do this right, should become one of the, the key areas in which value is going to be derived. We all have data. We all uh, collect uh, you know, uh, uh, data in droves, but the effectiveness of parsing through that, doing so securely, making sure there's a plan for how you are collecting that data and how you're analyzing it, and of course, ultimately, how you're synthesizing it and leveraging it to make better decisions. The data itself and even the synthesis of that data isn't going to make decisions for your organization. People still need to do that. So having the analytics in place, but also having the right people in place to interpret what's coming through to make better decisions becomes that much more important. But yeah, it, it seems like there's not a technology or digital executive. Indeed, not a not a CEO and even a board that isn't focusing to a great extent on data. And so this is this is an area that we are super bullish on uh, data strategy and all of the the uh, ancillary aspects of that. Sure. And, and speaking of the people aspect of that, I think it should be relevant to CIOs, um, CTOs, chief digital officers. But has have you seen the role of the chief data officer rising in organizations or? Any change in the way that companies are thinking about that as data becomes that much more strategic? Yeah, it's a great question, uh, Stephen. The chief data officer, the other CDO to the digital, uh, certainly has been rising in a lot of organizations. We're seeing a great number of uh, companies hiring CDOs, chief data officers, oftentimes reporting to chief information officers, though not, not always necessarily. What's interesting, though, Stephen, is if you evaluate the average tenure, uh, and my data may, is a, maybe a few months off here, but I think it's probably still directionally correct, the average tenure is barely a year for these chief data officers. And it would suggest that this is, um, this is complicated stuff. It's, not, it's easier said than done. As I mentioned, there's data littered across the organization. Every business unit, functional area, division of the company is collecting data. And the heads of those same divisions, functional areas, business units, um, probably have a uh, diff draw differing conclusions as to the risk of having a new leader who's going to be playing in their sandbox, one where they used to dominate and they they knew where all the toys were and they 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 were happy to play with them by themselves. Now all of a sudden, there's somebody else who, depending upon their purview, may be directing them as to how to use that data. And forgive me for taking sort of the the, the the cynical view on these things, but I think it's important to plan for this, that it's only human nature that some people at least will view that as a threat. And perhaps even some of them, hopefully not all of them, but some of them may even throw up blockers uh, towards the progress of that chief data officer. And indeed, we're seeing that these are some of the reasons why, uh, though the role is growing uh, in a lot of organizations, the tenure is is just inching along in terms of making progress um, along those lines. Another Interesting conclusion we're drawing in spending a, a good amount of time with a number of people who've been chief data officers is the diversity of purview is just remarkable. There are some people who who take on these roles and the purview that they've been given is more or less a, a box checker. You're you're kind of going around and checking to see the practices that others are managing in the different parts of the organization, but not really taking a hands-on approach towards uh, directing more unified uh, view of data and, and a unified and standardized and centralized uh, set of practices associated with it. There are still others who have that, that latter view of it that, that are in fact getting into and even uh, taking control and centralizing to a much greater degree the practices and standardization of how data is dealt with. And 
and everything in between, all sorts of different flavors of this. Uh, and so the the practices as to what makes for a, a great CDO, to what extent is it better to be centralized, to be federated, some combination of those two, uh, the the degree of control and influence uh, that, that that executive is given. Different organizations are going to draw different conclusions. And of course, different chief data officers will push harder than others for greater levels of, of uh, authority as well. And it's the combination of these things that makes for a, a degree of complexity. I will say, Stephen, that I, I, I still think that there's going to be some leading, there are some leading chief data officers that are emerging, uh, who now, in fact, have a few different experiences from, from several leading large organizations, and they are themselves codifying some of what they believe to work best relative to the practices associated with this burgeoning role. Uh, but I, it's going to take some time for, for some of that to be meted out to a greater extent, for best practices to emerge, for leading chief data officers uh, to be highlighted so that others might learn from and perhaps follow in the footsteps of those, those pioneers. Uh, so still early days, but it doesn't mean that the role is necessarily going to go away. Definitely. And, you know, you speak to something which I think any executive, regardless of their title, um, will start to encounter is that as you undergo these massive changes, and especially for your, your technology leaders who are trying to break down silos and really create a more permeable organization, they're just going to be organizational realities and politics and um, people and personalities that, that these leaders are going to have to uh, understand how to navigate. Um, and so I'm curious, just based on the the leaders that you've been speaking to, have you seen any examples or have any any thoughts on like how how folks who maybe haven't broken down those silos in the past but really want to, um, what some of those good practices look like and how you start to confront some of those sort of organizational realities? Yeah, the way in which we've always uh, counseled the technology and digital executives who we advise to do that, Stephen is to find a buddy, so to say, find another one of the chiefs, one of the business unit heads, functional heads, divisional heads with whom you are close and uh, in essence, pilot the activities that you hope will become the de facto activities across the entire enterprise. There is no denying that uh, innovation is happening, as I mentioned earlier, at the intersection between IT and a variety of other disciplines that make up the traditional disciplines of a, of a modern enterprise, finance operations, uh, you know, supply chain, uh, product service areas, et cetera. And it's up to the IT leader to develop, uh, hopefully they, they come into a, a, a company with a desire, a demand actually for these sorts of changes. But, but as your question suggests, in those scenarios where the, the technology and digital leader understands that this is the, the wave of the future, but the other executives have not drawn that conclusion, it means get, getting a ground game in place and finding a partner among those other leaders with whom you are close and, and where um, some value can be driven to set an example for others then to follow behind it and think about it as um, a series of activities, a series of pilots, if you will, that hopefully marshal progress in the right direction. And we've seen a number and counseled a great number of, of technology, technology and digital leaders in this very direction in helping them establish that cadence and pick the right partners and even the right sequence of partners uh, going from the friendlies to potentially the naysayers. And by the time you get to the naysayers, hopefully you've made so much progress with the, the friendlies that they, they the naysayers themselves are demanding, are, are, are reaching out uh, for a similar type of interaction between them. This is all about providing them with greater levels of value after all. It's about uh, partnering with them in new ways to bring new uh, ideas and new, um, new topics, new ways of working to these different parts of the organization. Hopefully, these are the sorts of things that uh, will be welcomed, especially once a uh, track record of progress is established. But, but um, finding those ways through a series of pilots, as I say, is oftentimes the best way to make it happen. If, in fact, you, have, you find that uh, the, the, the executive team isn't already oriented towards this kind of change. Right. I, I like that. It's almost like you're, if you don't already speak the language, if you, don't, or if you don't already have a common language, you're building toward that. And you're starting to really develop those building blocks to create the stronger relationships sort of centered around value that is going to drive that strong relationship between uh, the technology leader and others in the organization. 
So one of the things that you mentioned in your book that I find particularly interesting is that as some technology leaders are solving the needs of their company, they're also looking outside and identifying opportunities to, to take the solutions that they're creating and actually turn it into a revenue stream and a product that they can sell out into the market. Um, i curious if you could share some examples of, of companies that you've encountered who are doing that and doing that well. Yeah, it's a great question, Stephen. And uh, one of my favorite stories from the book is that of Shailesh Prakash, the uh, uh, chief information officer of the Washington Post. The Post, like so many periodicals, uh, went through very trying times uh, across the past decade. Uh, re- reduced readership, reduced advertising as the likes of uh, Facebook or Google started to suck up a lot of what was traditionally put towards newspapers from an advertising perspective. And as a re- consequence of that, a reduction in staff of the actual talent, people doing the reporting, people who were uh, columnists and so forth, obviously the lifeblood of the, of the, the periodical, um, uh, to say the least. So enter Shailesh Prakash about a decade ago, and he had a really a new vision for the, for the, uh, the company of developing into a true uh, engineering-centric mindset uh, for the IT organization. Like so many others, they'd outsource what had traditionally been uh, part of the IT organization. And a lot of what, what had been strategic within IT was now being done by others. He wanted to bring a lot of that back in and really bolster it even beyond as where it had ever been in developing new products for the organization. What, what ended up happening was, as he was working with his colleagues to diagnose what some of the biggest problems he could solve for them was, one was of the platform itself. That is the platform that they published on. It was kludgy. It was difficult to use. Uh, and in a business where oftentimes uh, you know minutes matter in terms of getting the scoop or getting the news out and being sort of the first to first to publish a story, th- this was actually really this was material. And so he developed a new platform that was world-class in terms of its being streamlined, easy to use. Uh, it even aided the, uh, aided the customer experience as well, the reader's experience as well. He solved this to such a great degree that he ended up um, making this into a product for other media properties to purchase. This is now on the pathway to becoming a $100 million business for the uh, for the corporation, and is representative of one of several stories where we're seeing IT leaders doing great work, solving an issue for themselves, that is for their companies, and recognizing a broader industry opportunity uh, to sell to others and to productize what has uh, solved an issue for for their own organizations, especially in those cases where there's not a viable off the shelf version of what's been been uh, been developed, and so very much representative of I think some creative thinking that IT leaders can be doing not only on behalf of their organizations, but ultimately eventually on behalf of the industry or the customers of the organization as well. Uh, by the way, just a quick footnote, Shailesh was rewarded to uh, for his efforts in going from chief information officer to now chief information and product officer for the entire organization. And by the way, uh, as as you know, uh, Jeff Bezos purchased the personally, not, not Amazon, but Jeff Bezos personally purchased the Washington Post. And Shailesh Prakash is someone who has his ear. He's on the board now of Blue Origin, uh, Bezos's, uh, uh, Bezos's space company, and the opportunities he and his team now have to influence the, the Washington Post are really remarkable. And they've gone through a period now of, of tremendous growth, uh, adding back to that, that staff of reporters and, and, and columnists and so on. And so they've really caught their stride in a new way as a result of, among other things, the great work that Shailesh and team have done. That's amazing. I think it's a great lesson for a lot of leaders. It's not, it's not only thinking about how can we make our own organization more nimble, but as we're thinking about that, is there an opportunity to take these practices that we're developing and help others become more nimble as well? Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I want to look back briefly to something you mentioned during that. It, it was very reassuring to hear, and, and hopefully for our listeners as well, is that you know, as a leader going through this process, perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the fifth, you know, it's important to understand that, you know, you're not alone in this. There are a lot of other leaders who are undergoing very similar challenges, maybe some who are a little bit behind you or a little bit ahead of you. But it, it touches on one of the broader themes in your book, Peter, which is the idea of an ecosystem. And the the people either in your organization or outside your organization who can help you make those decisions and develop yourself as a leader along the way. And I, I wondered if you could just spend a couple minutes uh, thinking of, or talking us through uh, how you see that ecosystem, who's involved and, and how technology leaders can really leverage that to help them on their own journeys. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great uh, point you raised there and something I'm certainly very passionate about as well, Stephen. 
The CIO role, thankfully, uh, there's so much that rhymes across the different roles, even if you're talking about a B2B versus a B2C company, for example, or industries that are very different. Uh, it's one of the reasons, frankly, why we see chief information officers who can succeed going from one industry to a very different industry. And in fact, actually, in some ways, bringing a lot of creative new ways of thinking by virtue of not being subject to the shibboleths of that industry that they are, they're, they're newly a part of. And so as a result of that, there's so much that can be gained uh, in developing the right ecosystem. And one of the foundational items that I call out in the book is competition, uh, generally speaking, has changed from company to company, Ford versus GM, Coke versus Pepsi, to ecosystem versus ecosystem. And what I mean by that is no company of, of, of any consequence uh, now go, you know, kind of goes alone uh, into the marketplace. They have a, they marshal a series of partners around them that allow them to do the things they do, to build the products they build, to deliver the services that they deliver, uh, and even to do the work inside the operation that they do. And IT uh, leaders are among those, uh, th those leaders within the enterprise that have the 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 best possibilities in terms of ecosystems from whom they can test hypotheses, uh, with whom they can. Uh, commiserate certainly when that's necessary, but also kind of learn from each other. And so I break it down into a few different categories. First of all, it is, and these are categories outside of the enterprise. As you point out, Stephen, there's certainly, you know, ecosystems of, of a sort that you might think about in terms of the partnership within the company. Uh, I, I focus on the, in, in my, uh, my chapter on the topic on the ecosystems you should also be building outside of the organization. So that begins with your peers. Um, as I mentioned, CIOs, there's a lot that rhymes across uh, the work that they do. Uh, and, and Stephen, indeed, the, the work you and I do in collaborating with a great number of CIOs, it's been heartening. I know you you believe as well uh, just how much can be learned um, across uh, in, in conversation with two or three or four or many uh, CIOs talking about a, a given topic despite coming from very different worlds. And as a result of that, having a strong network of fellow CIOs, again, to test hypotheses, to, to learn from, to uh, learn more about kind of how these different organizations are shaping their tech landscape and their portfolio and their, their partnerships uh, uh, with other organizations and so on. These become invaluable ways to, to run faster towards opportunity and to run away from, from danger where that's, where that's necessary. So this, this means curating a, a strong list of, of some number of CIOs of consequence with whom you develop a trusting relationship who you can turn to with these, what may be, you know, private conversations where you're sharing a, a worry or a concern or a, you know, a breach of some sort. Um, having those partnerships becomes especially valuable during those sorts of times. Um, the next, the next type of, uh, ecosystem partner that I would suggest is establishing venture capital relationships. VCs invest in the technology of tomorrow and having a preview as to what's coming down the pipeline and how technology is evolving oftentimes can come with great conversations with trusted relationships among VC investors. And, you know, for those CIOs who live further away from tech hubs like, like Silicon Valley, for instance, I have found that they're often surprised by the degree of symbiosis between venture capital and chief information officers. After all, the VCs who are investing in enterprise-grade technology, those very companies' customers are oftentimes CIOs. And so the VCs themselves are hungry for insight as to where they should be investing or to validate their own hypotheses, just as I'm certainly saying in, in the uh, in the context of your question, it's it's critical that CIOs be doing the same sort of investigation in the reverse. Where is smart being spent? Um, smart money being spent, and why? Uh, you know what sorts of uh, partners or, or or technology providers are are growing and, and gaining momentum that that perhaps we ought to be investing in. Either quite literally investing in. In some cases, there may be opportunities to do so, but but more uh, investing in their solutions for to, to for use and so on. You may also be able to get involved with a partner early enough to influence their product uh, in a way that would advantage your company in some ways and give you give yourself a, I might add a, an added advantage versus a, co a competitor as well. So the VC uh, ecosystem becomes very important also. Um, I'll, the, the, the third layer of this is the executive recruiting space. And as uh, headhunters are, are uh, thought through, oftentimes the logical conclusion is this is for when you need to kind of pull the parachute, to, you know, jump out of the airplane and pull the parachute and go off to a different destination. Uh, of course, executive recruiters are wonderful for those reasons. But I would say they're also really wonderful in terms of their insights as to um, org changes that are afoot, skills that are on the rise, reasons why your peers have failed 
are reasons why they have succeeded. You know, these are people that are constantly diagnosing the successes and failures of your peers because they're the ones replacing them. Uh, and is oftentimes replacing them because of uh, an issue that has arisen, but sometimes replacing them because of a successful retirement of an executive as well. But they're also understanding, you know, where is their demand for certain kinds of roles that didn't even exist several years ago? Having input into this is also a key ingredient in helping you validate the ongoing evolution of your uh, IT organization as well. Uh, and then I, the, the, the last uh, ecosystem set of partners that I, that I refer to in the book is strategic vendor partners, uh, strategic partners, strategic external partners. Um, I, I, I oftentimes try to avoid the vendor uh, moniker because you want to establish true partnerships with these organizations. And the ones that are most strategic, you need to be thinking about them as sources of insight, not just fulfillers of work. Because after all, hopefully you're choosing them because of their experience. And if in fact that's the case, Put the onus on them to bring their world to you. They work with so many of your peers, so many companies of comparable size and complexity to your own, presumably. What, what can you learn from them? What are they, in fact, learning from this portfolio of customers that they, they work with that, that might bring relevant insights back to you? And so pushing for that kind of value in the conversation such that you're, you're getting innovative and creative ideas from the partners that you're engaging with, even beyond perhaps the scope of the work uh, that you're doing with and undertaking with those organizations. Um, and so broadly speaking, as you think across all four of those vectors of the ecosystem ecosystem that I've just described, Stephen, it's about expanding the net more widely, casting it out such that you have the opportunity to get a lot more ideas to, to uh, uh, back into your operation that you can choose from. And so the more, more sources you have for insight and inspiration and innovation, ultimately the greater value you're likely to contribute for your enterprise. Excellent. Yeah. The more data that you can bring in, uh, the ability you have to synthesize it, the more, the more progress that you can make and the more, the more smart decisions you can take. Uh, thank you. Um, so I, we are the Technovation podcast, so I'd be remiss if I didn't mention technology, also a theme of the book. You, you talk a bit in that section about technical debt as a measure of nimbleness or the way that you manage technical debt. And I love the anecdote that you have with Rob Carter, the CIO at FedEx, the way he sort of recognized the technical debt that was present in the organization and how he made a plan to move forward from that. Wondering if you could just speak on that a little bit, because I think it, it says so much about how today's leaders can start to address technical debt in their own organizations and, and try to pass forward. Yeah, it's one of my favorite stories in the book, uh, Stephen, is uh, Rob Carter, multiple decades CIO at FedEx, uh, a right-hand leader to uh, Fred Smith, the founder and still CEO of FedEx. Uh, and he has been in the role long enough uh, that the the topics or the areas of technology that he and his team have developed that are really the crown jewels of the organization. Think, for instance, about the logistics technology uh, as an example, that um, he has seen that he's seen that evolve and even gotten to uh, gotten to the point of understanding that the the crown jewels are getting old <laughs> and they need to be replaced. And there are not a lot of leaders necessarily that think in that way. Frankly, there are not a lot of leaders that have such a long tenure that they can see a full evolution of so much of the tech stack as has he. But he's had the humility to say, look, the very source of our of our strength, uh, of our competitive advantage um, could be the source of our downfall if in fact we don't do something about this. And so he went through and made the case actually to the board of the organization uh, that they needed to have a many year plan to modernize the technology footprint, to, to develop uh, more standards across the organization, to ensure that they were, uh, they were um, using modern technology wherever possible, cloud first mentality as well, so that they were reducing the fixed costs associated with, with uh, IT and developing more of a variableized cost structure such that they could more rapidly uh, scale up and God forbid, should the circumstances require it, scale back as well. You know, one of the issues, Stephen, that IT departments have had for so many years is a lot of fixed costs. Yeah, I've worked for so many different chief information officers who at the outset of a fiscal year um, are in the unenviable position of having the, the majority of their budget spoken for based on decisions that were made years prior. 
And that's because of long uh, tails to these technology investments, long amortization schedules. And as a result of that, the, the portion of the budget that's available for new things, ultimately for innovations that, that would benefit uh, the company and its customers, is limited as a result of this. So in fact, taking these steps, and these are not easy steps to take. As I mentioned, for Rob Carter, this was a multi-year journey, uh, some of it taking more like seven, eight years, in fact, in its evolution. Uh, so it's not for the faint of heart. But at the same time, in in doing this, you're setting up your organization to, to a much greater extent to add a, a new kind of value and to have a lot more room to maneuver uh, in order to make investments as some of those innovative ideas present themselves. As I mentioned at the outset of the, the whole uh, definition of nimble, of being able to seize opportunity more readily. Well, you can only seize opportunity readily if you've got some dry powder left over in your budget to, to fund something associated with the idea that has presented itself. And so orienting your organization such that you have that dry powder, you have that flexibility, becomes that much more important. So yes, especially for what I refer to as digital immigrant organizations, those born before the digital age, oftentimes some of the most important data flows through antiquated systems. You know, eliminating as many of those as possible, hopefully getting to the point where they are all eliminated and you are are on a modern technology stack befitting a, a digital native organization. After all, none of them are investing in 1980s uh, or 1990s technologies, probably. Uh, that then means that you are set up much more uh, robustly and in a better position to compete in the digital age. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I so love that story and how he was able to see what what the future could be and really drive the organization toward that. And as you said, it's, it's not a, a flip of a switch. It's definitely a, a multi-year journey for a lot of leaders, um, but one absolutely worth taking. Um, last question for you, Peter. At, at the end of the podcast, typically you love to ask leaders what they see on the horizon and the trends that they see um, impacting their business and the world, frankly, in, in the year ahead or the many years ahead. So I wanted to turn that to you and see, as you contemplate the next couple of years, what, what do you see coming on the horizon? What changes do you anticipate both to the, the role of the CIO and the technology leader, um, but really to the, the trajectory of, of enterprise tech and uh, CIOs as a whole? Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. Um, so a couple th couple things that I want to focus on. Certainly, artificial intelligence continues to grow in its uh, in its influence, and uh, companies are investing accordingly. And I will say, actually, another accelerator in that has been uh, the economic downturn. As organizations need to, as I mentioned before, need to tighten their belt, and unfortunately, that has meant uh, letting go of some staff in many cases finding ways to make up for the lost staff to continue to do the work that was done, oftentimes automation takes its place. And whether it's RPA or machine learning or artificial intelligence, and there's sort of a continuum here of some similar themes related to algorithms and data and analytics, um, some, some combination of those uh, are likely to take the place of the work once done by people. And as a result of that, um, I think some tremendous advancements will continue to be made um, on the technology front from that perspective. Now, that also means, of course, there's going to be some displacement uh, as the, the, the technology will take over uh, roles that people once held, thus rendering moot those old roles to a greater extent. And so I would say uh, another thing that we need to be thinking about, and it gets back to our, our, our agility um, uh, point, is a, a need, even as a society, frankly, for some retraining. Uh, of some of the some of the people who held some of the posts that are likely to go away and perhaps go away for good. And so the extent to which uh, I, I think some of the best companies, in fact, are do do a great uh, job in thinking about how do we retrain some people in those older skill sets? Um, the, the fact that they they have primarily operated in technologies that are decades old doesn't mean they don't have necessarily the capacity to learn the new technologies. In fact, many of them, many, many uh, of these these associates would be uh, very hungry to learn those new technologies for the future. And so, identifying some of those people uh, in order to bring them into your fold and and hire some mid career people as opposed to to focusing exclusively on people that are just out of undergrad or graduate programs i think becomes much more important as well i'll also underscore that i think there's tremendous opportunity we're seeing an acceleration of technology and digital leaders advancing beyond that role whether it's cios for instance adding operations so and thus becoming cios or ctos in addition to coos as a combination um, you can almost see this as kind of like the DevOps uh, 
a combination at a much larger scale as some of these organizations, uh, some of these leaders rather, make the case for that expansion of responsibilities. We're also seeing IT leaders uh, taking over topics like strategy for the entire organization or product for the entire organization. These are some really interesting developments as well that underscore great work done in the technology field, having relevance to much broader topics uh, um, across the enterprise as well. Indeed, we're also seeing a good number of CIOs who are founding companies uh, and who are becoming CEOs of other companies. And this is, I think, a tremendous, uh, it represents tremendous progress for the discipline uh, also. Gosh, it doesn't seem like all that long ago that that would have seemed almost an impossible um, career path for for a technology executive to take just because of so many of the differences in terms of their area of focus versus others who typically are able to seize the brass ring of that top job. And then lastly, I would say is board access. We're seeing so many boards now hungry for, Peter Weil uh, did an interview not too long ago with Peter Weil from MIT Scissor uh, about uh, digitally savvy boards and the outsized performance of those companies that have them, that have multiple people on the board with technology backgrounds. And uh, we're seeing this, whereas I think the the early uh, adoption of, of technologists in the board level was primarily for defensive reasons because of cyber issues, for instance. Now, to a much greater extent, it's for offensive reasons as well, of, of helping uh, influence uh, the, the enterprise in terms of new opportunities to use technology to develop new sorts of new revenue streams, new products, new services, and the like. And so this represents a tremendous uh, opportunity for great IT leaders. I think we're going to see this trend only expand as a result of the the wonderful work being done by technology and digital leaders in, leading into this crisis, as well as the great work by that same cadre of people to get these companies out of the crisis as well. I think they're going to get the kudos they deserve uh, by, by way of expanded responsibilities and, and new opportunities like joining boards of organizations. Indeed, it sounds like there's a tremendously promising few years ahead and beyond for, for today's technology leaders, especially as they continue to transform companies and really be that catalyst for a positive transformational change inside their organization. Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to join us to talk about getting to nimble, how to transform your company into a digital leader. Um, excited to continue the conversation and uh, hope that you, you have a great rest of your day. Stephen, always great to talk to you. Thank you for the great questions and, and uh, look forward to our next chance to catch up. Thanks for tuning in. Please join me on Thursday when my guest will be Stanley McChrystal, a retired general of the United States Army, best known for having led the Joint Special Operations, who is now the founder and chief executive officer of the McChrystal Group.